So I'll start? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I have tea. I'm ready to go. Good morning. My name is... Oh, that's a weird way to start. My name. Good morning. I'm Harry. I'm a furniture maker in Bristol, England. Hi, I'm Shane. I'm a furniture restorer conservator in Sydney, Australia. Uh, welcome to our show. Perfect. Yeah. I think we're getting better at it. Yeah. Today is... <laughs> <laughs> Today is my turn to pitch, and I've got, I, this is another subject that I know we've talked about before. In fact, it was like, it came yeah. up very early on after we met. It's definitely yeah, something, it did. it's come up a lot. You already, you obviously already know what it is. The subject is, um, I guess, as you said just a minute ago, the the challenge yeah, the challenge of, of making new things in a world that already has so much stuff in it and, and the justification yeah. behind making new things in a world that already has so much stuff in it. I had to do a presentation at UTS uh, earlier this year with the Bauer, and um, it was to this this group of interdisciplinary students, really cool course. They had to pitch an, an idea using various different design disciplines from their different backgrounds. But the idea in this case was dealing with disposable furniture, trying to find solutions in some way or other, it could be small or big, to, to handle issues of disposable furniture, which is often for events, new things made, or cheap things that are made really and, and will fall apart in a few years. And, and I had to present my, I guess, my industry knowledge, which came from working at the at, a, at the Bauer for many years, which was environmental charity dedicated to, to waste reduction. And I was running the furniture workshop. So when talking to them, I really wanted to emphasize this idea that there is already a lot of stuff out there. Because in my experience at the Bauer, it changes your viewpoint on furniture, I think, and wood in general, when you see the massive quantities of stuff that get thrown away. We all have well, most people I know have this instinct to not want to throw things away. Most people I know in, in conservation, restoration, or in craft really don't like yeah. throwing things away. Um, we can almost be compulsive hoarders. But when yeah. when running a workshop, a wood shop, in a place where we were getting so much stuff all the time, I broke and eventually went, no, we can't, we can't take in more timber. I have a giant pile of timber. I can't see the back of it anymore. There's so much being gotten rid of that I won't get to yeah. it in the amount of time it takes for new timber to come through. And I think in, in 2017, one of the years I was developing it, the Bauer itself diverted just in the Sydney area, 280 tons of usable land, like stock from going to landfill. <laughs> yeah. And that was a tiny portion of what was offered to yeah. us. Because somebody up in the office has to sit there and, and scroll through email and phone call and phone call and, and go, this one has the best chance of surviving this one has the best chance of you know being sold so those are the ones we're going to take in because those are the ones we have the best chance of of actually saving and then the massive rest yeah. of it is going to end up basically going straight to landfill and i was also told at the time that a lot of stuff that was going to auction houses nearby was just not selling and going straight to landfill in particular brown furniture is often stated as out yeah. of style i think in that same year we fixed like 152 items in the in the furniture workshop which was yeah. nice, but you can you can really see how 
small the number that is in proportion to what is being gotten rid of. Yeah. It's just unwieldy, the amount of stuff. I presented to the UTS students and I shared with them my absolute favorite, absolute favorite Onion article of all time. And The Onion is a, a satirical um, website and newspaper that's been around for ages. But this article is, um, oh, right, yeah. is titled, Report Confirms No Need to Make New Chairs. And they have wonderful quotes <laughs> in it like, through rigorous observation and analysis, we have verified that there is absolutely no shortage of chairs at this time. Uh, according to our findings, many chairs are presently unoccupied, and there is no reason people cannot sit in these empty <laughs> chairs. Which I think is great. But also does highlight an issue of there are so many out, of us out there who get into woodwork and get into making, who are really excited about making something new. But do we actually need to be? And I, for me, I was really excited initially about making things that were new. I was really excited about putting my name on it, like having created something, looking at something and being like, yeah, I made that. And other people are going to get excited about the fact that I made that. And I had to face, I mean, because I was working at a waste reduction thing and I needed to be able to say that I was trying to reduce waste rather than make more of it. I had to face the fact <laughs> yeah. that it was better for me to try and salvage and save or even remake things that already existed rather than create a new thing just to make a new thing. And actually, I think there was um, um, in one of uh, the Lost Art Press books, I think it's the Anarchist Design book. There was a yeah. really, really good little quote on the side of one of the pages that I snapped a photo of, um, which just reads, new, 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 just for the sake of newness, for the sake of a sales curve in order to make people throw away the old things before they have served their time. Not so long ago, we looked to make better form now we only have to find a new one. And I felt that very strongly. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and I guess, so for me, I ended up going down the road of repair, which I love. And I ended up going down trying to figure out how to make things last longer and how to use resources available to the best of my ability. And that led me down the road of restoration conservation, which I absolutely thrilled about. But I also, like you were actually saying before this, I love encouraging people to make with wood because it's such a wonderful yeah. process and it's such a empowering process to make things yourself. Um, but also part of it for me that gets me excited about teaching people how to make is teaching them how to understand and respect making processes that will last. Not just making for the sake of newness, but making as a way to appreciate what will last understand the materials more so that you're not wasting things. Um, it, it's all interconnected, that idea of, of making in my mind. If you learn good making processes, then you learn how to appreciate what will last and how to care for the things that you have and how to um, look to own things that, that won't be thrown away and that aren't just made to be new and, and thrown away, but, but things that have value. That's my theory anyway. Um, that's what I like yeah. to think in my happy little brain, which is why we, we pushed towards um, <laughs> um, you know running workshops. Like I really pushed to having workshops running every evening because it felt like in that one, in that one year actually, where I said we fixed 152 pieces of furniture, we had oh, over 2,500 different workshop participants in our courses that year. Cool. So yeah, I think that there's potentially more value sometimes in teaching, but I'm still so up in the air about this. I love the idea of making, I love watching people craft things. I, I think that there's value in keeping craft skills alive. I think that there's value in people making things for themselves rather than just buying, but also there's so much out there already 
that it is hard for me in my mind to justify making new things. And and I'm a restorer, yeah. repairer person. And so I guess what I'm going to put forth to you first is for you as, as a dedicated maker whose who's job and role and putting themselves out there as someone who is making new things, how do you feel about this question and how do you approach... And I almost just said, and make excuses for yourself, um, but justify <laughs> <laughs> yeah. your process. Yeah, it's a good point. And I think that, that justification of, of process and choices is something that we, we tend to naturally look back to quite often and kind of having good reason to do things. It's something I'm really, really passionate about, not just doing stuff because it's what we do or what I feel I should do, but having better justification than that. Yeah. And it is, this topic is a, is a real difficult one because for me, it's kind of full of, yeah, trying to make excuses and almost hypocritical views on other people making stuff and get into a little bit but I think uh, <laughs> I had a really interesting chat um when was it on Wednesday to the founder of the Maker's Shed in Bristol which is a it's a work it's a woodworking workshop teaching um basic woodworking and it's really kind of themed around an eco-friendly approach and it being very accessible to as many people as possible um, and she she had some really interesting views on on the idea of repair as well as making. And she sorry one second I got to remember where I'm going with this. <laughs> Give me a second. <laughs> not that you prepared. Um, no, not this. Not this. The first bullet point I go to is not on my list. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it it I I talked to her briefly about the conflict of kind of encouraging making but also reducing waste, which I think, like you mentioned, is often kind of two completely contrasting things. And and I think the way I almost justify it is obviously thoughtful work and careful work but also I justify it with with my knowledge of the materials with my knowledge of the techniques I'm using as well um, and the knowledge of how they'll last the longevity of course the repairability as well and that like I I, I got to kind of give myself a talking to now and again because I see things on Instagram or wherever it might be and it's something that I know is constructed poorly and I know it won't last and yeah. it and maybe it looks quite pretty or not it might look might look really crap but anyway someone's made something and and they're happy they've made something and I love that more than anything that it kind of to be able to encourage people and teach people to make stuff yeah. kind of it feels to me to be one of the most valuable things I can spend my time and my life doing but then again I know that thing that I, I can see there is going to last you a couple of years and then it's going to be sat in landfill and it's full of plastic and it's it's a real contradiction and it, it's an ongoing thing and what I try and justify to myself is I kind of ask myself what what's different between the table I've made and the table I can see someone else has made there which and and the difference is is always comes back to knowledge of the materials and and an understanding of of how things degrade how things can be fixed and how the joinery might might last and and what's going to break first and whether that can be replaced and and that kind of more in-depth consideration when making and designing is how I end up justifying a lot Having said that, I think about a year ago or so, I decided, and for not not this reason, not because I believe there to be too much stuff, which I do agree with, 
but not for that reason entirely. I decided that making one-off pieces of furniture was not the way for me to have the biggest impact, and it was not the most valuable use of my time. I decided that encouraging making and starting those conversations through teaching, through filming and producing videos and writing about making was really how I'd have a larger impact on the field because I feel I can do and I should do. So eventually I do want to move away from the making because not move away I'd never want to stop making stuff that's not the right that's not what I meant but I want to make more careful decisions on what I'm making at the moment I'm having to take on jobs because they pay mm. of course um so there's it's only true to an extent I can only kind of romanticize making to an extent because I do have to eat so I, I do want to lean towards making the pieces that I think are the best they can be in terms of environmental impact and waste reduction but also doing justice to heritage craft and all the things i'm excited about there and really have a focus on teaching making but teaching making in such a way that other people are thinking about that as well about not just making for for the sake of new like you said yeah it was an interesting discussion about painting furniture with jenny from the maker's shed and she said we were talking about finishing and how she'd like i'm in discussions at the moment about teaching a finishing course for them um and i mentioned paint as a finish and she said oh i really don't like painting furniture i don't like the idea of painting furniture and i do agree i do agree Mm. It, it sometimes feels a shame but then again if i have kind of uh, a 70s pine corner cupboard that nobody wants you can give them away yeah and it's gonna go to landfill yeah. or i paint it and put it in someone's house and it's gonna not be wasted and absolutely paint that piece of wood absolutely there's there's no reason not to so it's the appropriate application that that's a completely different thing that's a horrible sidetrack <laughs> no it's a good one so i'm actually going to jump back in because there's the painting yeah, furniture on. thing i do i do want to talk about because there's definitely this this well there's the thing that you hinted at and then there's painted furniture and i think that the thing that you hinted at was epoxy pores um yeah and the painted furniture i think they both get a lot of negativity one bothers me more than the other and i i mean there's some beautiful epoxy pore stuff out there i and i love watching people get really excited about it it's 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 fun to watch people get excited about things but me i see a giant chunk of plastic that even with really good uv stabilizers in it is still gonna degrade in a way that that i i find troubling and i have a hard time looking past that um painted furniture on the other hand upsets a lot of people you have similar ideas of you're covering covering a beautiful piece and you know it's made of wood so i want it to be you know i want it to be wood but i think that there's I mean, one, with the epoxy pour, you're you're making a new thing. So you're already in, in the realm of, I think it, it needs more thought. Whereas with the painted furniture thing, you're often saving something old. And you're saving something that would otherwise yeah. be thrown away because you've already looked at it and said, I don't really like the way it looks as it is. You haven't taken yeah. a beautiful piece of, I don't know, mahogany furniture or something and gone, oh, I'm going to paint it, though sometimes you yeah. do. You've taken something that you went, I think this would look better and I'd be happier to have it in my home and use it if it was painted. And paint is removable. Yeah. I mean, it's not it's not always removable and you do sometimes have to use nasty chemicals to do it. So it's not perfect, but yeah. it, it is, I've, I, in my experience at the Bower, we taught furniture painting classes and I have seen a yeah. lot of things get saved because they were painted that would have otherwise ended up in land. And there were actually many pieces of furniture that came through our painting furniture classes that looked really good painted because they had really nice shapes to them 
or carvings that were perhaps yeah. machined out of a factory that didn't pay attention to what the wood grain looked like. So when it was wood, the wood grain was actually competing with the carving and it wasn't really showing it off. Yeah, yeah. Or as soon as it was painted, you had a nice, lovely, smooth surface and you were just highlighting the, the shape of the piece itself. So I'm not, a, yeah. I, I actually think painting is, is a wonderful option. Um, and, and it comes down yeah. to a, a couple of those little justifications. You're saving something, you're being thoughtful about it. Hopefully you're using a fairly sustainable paint um, and, yeah. and hopefully you're not painting something that, that shouldn't be painted, <laughs> I guess. I don't, I don't know how to say that well. Um, yeah, no, I know what you mean. I, I, I wonder, jumping back to a couple of things you said though, I have two questions for yeah. you. One is, do you think makers should have a responsibility to, like if you're, if you're a hobbyist, you know, you're getting into it, you're doing this on the weekend, you have some responsibility, but probably not the same responsibility of a professional maker to understand your materials and understand the longevity of where you're yeah. working. But what would you do? Would you say that anyone in the professional making world should have a responsibility to consider longevity in their materials, to consider why they're making new when, when there's already something out there? And and you did already mention there's the you've you've got to make a living i know a few cabinet makers who set themselves up as cabinet makers and i know that in many cases they want to be making things with certain materials and of certain quality but they can't find the clients who can afford yeah. to have it made that way so they're making the sacrifices but they're the, I, the people i know personally are being trying to find a way to be thoughtful about you know where can i make sacrifices so that i can eat but also to try and make sure that the best result is and i guess for you as a professional maker what do you think about that i definitely think that every maker does have a responsibility i i, I do think that it's true to varying extents of course if if i'm a hobbyist making furniture on on my weekends and that furniture is going in my home or i'm gifting it to a family obviously your impact is going to be significantly less than than someone that's doing anything on a bigger scale but i do think there's still a responsibility to be thoughtful and to have that consideration i honestly don't think we should be making anything without a con- consideration of longevity mm-hmm. and that is i think that's true for for all craft and every single choice of what material we use i do think it should be considered but do i believe that to the extent of stop making things if you can't find a happy balance i don't know i'm yeah. still kind of arguing myself about that i don't want people to stop making things but i do want people to stop making horrible things so i'm constantly <laughs> conflicting uh, but but then again i like i'm thinking about this and i'm going to be making 20 pieces in a year maybe top end and these are these are kind of you know you know what i stand for and the kind of style of work i do so i also think okay i can i can have all these careful considerations and these thoughts and make sacrifices where there needs to be sacrifices then again i I look at me against big department stores john lewis ikea this kind of thing making thousands and thousands of pieces of furniture and i think actually although maybe i shouldn't be adding more furniture to the world if i can make my furniture in such a way that benefits in other ways such as such as craft such as even encouraging craft in terms of mental health and whatever other benefit it could have, I think on the scale that I'm working outweighs 
the impact of adding more furniture to the world. Which, again, is kind of just scraping for justification for making <laughs> stuff. Um, <laughs> I th- I but think I really think it's, it's right. as simple... Right. Yeah, I do think it's as simple as if you are thoughtful about your materials and kind of strive for knowledge of your materials. It's, it's not a careless, here's a thing that looks great and it's easy, whatever, mm-hmm. but here's a thing and I know what it, what's in it and I know how it degrades or how it lasts or how it can be reversed or I think if that level of thought is there that that's how I justify it on the whole and I do think it's as simple as that but yeah it's a real it's a real conflict it's full of hypocrisy on my part but a uh, difficult one really difficult one I I I like to believe that what I'm doing is valuable to a greater extent than it's damaging. Mm. And that's enough justification for me to continue to do what I'm doing, whether that value comes in other places or not. Yeah, I would say you, you've you've touched on a few things that I think are important. One is scale, obviously. When when you're at the point of yeah, I mean one of, of the one of the concerns with you know you've got your large furniture outlet. I mean they've already built an industry that that relies on them being able to sell X amount of pieces of furniture a year, and now they're hitting these targets, and the the goal is meeting these targets, and it's not about the furniture necessarily, and that's already starting to no. become a worry place for me but even that's the same on a small scale you know you quit your job and you set up a workshop and you're paying rent in a workshop and you're buying tools and you have a family and you have kids all right i need to do x many kitchens a year to be able to to survive yeah um it's similar it's hard i think there is a lot i mean there's the outright evils you know if you're you're making something just for the profit that you know is faulty that you or you're doing what is that terminology planned obsolescence you're making something designed to break in two years so that you can sell the next one in two years time that in my mind is straight up evil um i don't i don't have i i want to be more subtle about that but i don't i can't be i don't it just seems wrong to me and that's one level but i think you're right there are other levels as well where you can i think it's easy for a lot of people to get excited and caught up in the new and i i even watch a lot of small scale people usually really excited people come into it and go i just had this idea this thing that i can make and we can make a lot of these and people will buy it and i'm already immediately nervous of that person and the thing that they're making because it seems to me immediately that this person is more more interested in the idea of selling this product than they are in the product itself yeah. and i i think yeah. that there is definitely a responsibility to if nothing else make a product that you think has a need that you are meeting a need yeah. of some kind it, it is important if you're making yeah, th- purely to sell the thing that's already questionable but if you're making a thing that you yeah. can sell that you also know is needed then that's already a different thing actually it was it ikigai um, the Japanese concept. Um, do you remember that one? Yeah, I do. Um, one sec. I'm going to ruffle around quickly. My notebook is in front of me. Yeah, it's something I saw. It's, that's a, that's more no idea for where I saw it. the personal self. That's how you find your lot in life. Yeah, yeah. And it's a balance of it different it's, forfe- forces. 
Yeah, so it's Ikigai. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah, it it about the your kind of reason for being, and it's often drawn as a Venn diagram with four circles of what you love, what the world needs, what can be paid for, um, and what you're good at. Mm-hmm. And the center of that, all of those circles cross over, is Ikigai, and um, and that's definitely something I thought about a lot. I drew that while I was in Japan. I saw it in a book and. It's something we discussed as well, and it really, actually you saying it, I've completely forgotten about it, but you saying it really reminds me that was quite a pivotal point of justification of what I'm doing when I read that, because you can go around and this is what I love to do. What the world needs is the big one, Mm. is why I'm doing what the world needs. And I believe I can justify that for my work, and I do think it should be considered, no doubt, in everything that's made. But I think what you said about um, profit and kind of target-led, big-scale companies, I think it all comes down to, quite simply, that it's just the reason why you're making the thing. And the answer to that is really gonna gonna tell you whether you should be making the thing. Yeah, I think that there's a lot a lot to be found in in that answer. Um, and I think yeah, there's you know there's always the first answer you know because I love it or because it's what I'm good at. But you know. E- as as Ikigai shows, yeah. there there are multiple, and if you can if you can answer all four of those rather than just one, yeah. then then you're definitely on the right path. If if nothing else, if you have an answer for for why you think it's uh, the world needs it or it's useful, and you know that you like it and and that you're good at it and that or that you think you will be good at it if you're not yet, and you, you know yeah. you can find people who are willing to pay for it. If you can find that, I think you're already definitely on on a good track. Yeah, no, I agree. And it, I think it's something that needs to be reevaluated so, regularly. Yeah, I do because, like, like you said, um, you, you the reason you get into woodworking and the reason that you are doing woodworking often are not the same as time goes on. Like, like you said, you, you, your friend, cabinet maker, who is constantly kind of fighting that and trying to find good justification for decisions. So I, I think you're right. It, it should be reevaluated as as you go because maybe the amount of work you're doing is scaling up and you've got to kind of check yourself that am I making compromises for the sake of profit and are those compromises detrimental to kind of one of the circles what the world needs like it I think you're right it needs to be a constant thing because it changes all the time there's something you briefly mentioned earlier on actually two things yeah. that i did want to bring up again though because they are they're in my notes to talk about as well although now i'm wondering if because as i think about it i've thought about it a lot i'm wondering if it's something that we should talk about in full another time okay and that's the idea of um longevity yeah and repairability in a yeah um you mentioned can't remember on, on what context but making things with the idea of of longevity which which i take to be how long it will last or making what is sometimes referred to as heirloom furniture or long-lasting furniture stuff that'll last yes. hundreds of years yeah, yeah. versus something that's only going to last five or ten and then also repairability which kind of plays into allowing things to last a long time at least in my mind yeah which is making things that in intentional ways ways to ensure that they can be repaired yeah now you mentioned it in the context of this in in the context of justifying your making process and i wonder how much of in your design i mean i know but i kind of want you to talk about <laughs> it how much in your design you uh favor these ideas or, or you really push these ideas yeah yeah i think for me they're 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 high up on the list it, it's almost at the forefront of design i think and that that's for a couple of reasons that i think in terms of 
of the repairability and longevity, from what I've seen from and heard from talking to different makers, is there seems to be two quite clearly different approaches. The first being, I'm going to make a thing that I believe can be repaired relatively easily um, without too many things that are impossible to undo, or construction things that nobody will guess that it's been done that way. So it's less likely to be deconstructed and put back together, things like that. Mm. The the other kind of approach being, I'm going to make this thing as sturdy and as strong as possible, and it will never need repairing. <laughs> 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 Which I've heard from so many people. And it's just like, just a wildly optimistic, terribly yeah. stupid thing to think. Well, okay, let's not... Let's not <laughs> No, no, that's 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 not I fair. I think that there's a lot of optimism in it, and a lot of uh, there's a lot of optimism. I, I think that there is definitely. I think there's also this kind of like it's the ideal. I'm working towards yeah, definitely. ensuring that I'm making it the best way I can, and the best way in that viewpoint is that it won't break. Yeah, and I think it comes from a good place. That approach, no doubt, comes from a good place because it is that. It's I think I'm, I'm doing the best thing in that it's going to last as long as possible. It's going to be as yeah. strong as possible, and it's not going to break. But things do tend to break so yeah it's a difficult one for me it's definitely very important and i think a lot of that's come from the environment in which i was studying which is westine which is largely a restoration and conservation workshop as you know and it was only there where i kind of gained that appreciation for things being easy not easy but reasonably simple to take take apart and put back together or refinish or whatever that might be i it was at westine where i gained that kind of that first became an important thing to me at the design stage and and it's down to little things it is obviously there's the choice of finishes and adhesives and all of that but there's also stuff like joinery choices that are somewhat predictable i've made a couple of things which have ridiculous choices and kind of Mm -hmm. overly complicated joinery and Mm -hmm. and a lot of it might not be visible meaning to get that apart i'm probably going to smash it up because i'm never going to guess there's a bare-faced sliding dovetail with a with a key in it that you need to pull out and nobody's going to do it so so it comes down to things like that kind of which doesn't mean working in in a very simplistic way but it means doing things that are somewhat predictable and then like like i mentioned as well the choices in materials so for me it's very important it it really is and but i think that's only come from being around restorers and working doing restoration work that's where that's come from and not learning to make stuff so i i'm not surprised that it's not at the forefront of design for makers and in in my opinion that definitely comes back to what you kind of said earlier and what we talked about in the first episode which is that if you know your materials a little bit more yeah it changes the way you think about things if you know definitely and if you know these construction materials and you know how things are fixed Mm. it changes the way you think about things there's a whole conversation in, in just those considerations yeah my my last question for you is um and this is from personal personal <laughs> desire um and also part of what we were just talking about though do you think that makers should take on more repair work 
Ooh. do you think both in value or in necessity that either makers should justify their making of new things with repairing things yeah or that maybe there's just value in spending time repairing things to understand how to make things yeah do you think that should be more a part of what makers do um yes <laughs> oh okay <good. laughs> uh yeah i, I I, I definitely do. I, I'm not... I have mixed... I'm going to preface this. I have mixed feelings yeah, about right. this. Yeah, right. Yeah. I do think it's it's important. And I'm slightly biased in that because that, like I said, that's what I've been surrounded by. I've not just learned furniture making. Wherever I've been learning furniture making, there's always been restoration work going on or being taught. So I can't avoid that it is part of my approach, but not necessarily part of my kind of everyday work. At the moment, I'm doing almost no restoration work. I have the odd small thing, but almost nothing, which is something I'd like to change, actually. In terms of using that as a sort of justification for making things i think no i think it shouldn't be the case of i repaired a chair so i'm going to make a chair and that's fine because i've fixed one i don't think it necessarily has to be that way because i think also there's a lot of value in focusing your craft and practice and getting really good at, at a thing and that's kind of where I am at the moment, rather than uh, when I first got to West Dean, I was doing lots of things. I was making kitchen cabinets, laying floors, carving rocking horses, turning bowls. And, and I really didn't know which of these avenues that all came under the umbrella of woodworking I really wanted to, to run down. And it kind of settled on fine furniture making with traditional tools. And that that decision to do that was the point where I started to really refine my skills. So I think if it, if repair or any other sort of thing becomes part of the craft, which I do think it should be the case to an extent, I think it should be done somewhat carefully. Because I know, I know you've had problems with this as well, kind of jumping about between so many different things, cause I, either because I think they're all valuable, because I love doing them all, and never really having enough time to focus on something and get really good at one thing. Yeah, that's my career. Yeah, exactly. So I, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want to say you're not really good at one thing. <laughs> that's what I was trying to avoid. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's it is the case. <laughs> well, you can say it. <laughs> um, so I think I like you said. I think I think it, it it's definitely valuable to learn repair and restoration to an extent because it does not only because it's a valuable thing in terms of waste reduction like we spoke about, but also because it's so valuable to how you'll approach making. And that's not necessarily just in terms of repairability, but all of a sudden I'm looking at these historic techniques and i'm learning about this historic historic finish or all these other things that i wouldn't necessarily be exposed to when i'm learning to make stuff and i think that can mold you into a, a different maker and and potentially a more informed maker so i do think it definitely holds a lot of value i i think my my mixed feelings on it play into something you talked about as well but on the opposite my my concern is i have seen a lot of people who are not focused repairers or restorers yeah. do repair work that i kind of wish they hadn't done yeah um, yeah and so on that same regard there's a certain part of me that that wants me to go all right n no just 
leave the leave the repair restoration for people who specialize in that field. Yeah. And and there's there's definitely a part of my brain that says that. Do you think that works the other way? As in, I am a restorer and I'm making things. Do you think it works back the other way? I don't think it works the same like way. I shouldn't be making Yeah, things. I don't think it works the same way. Really? Well, yeah, well, I think if you're a restorer, or a restorer to the extent I'd like you to be a restorer, kind of a sympathetic <laughs> to a sympathetic approach, and not just kind of slapdash. Well, if you're a full-time restorer, you're probably going to be good, I'm hoping. Then, for some reason, I have confidence that you can make good decisions in making furniture. But I don't think that, like you said, if you're a maker, I don't think you can necessarily make good decisions in restoring stuff. What do you think? I, I will say I have met some restorers and have seen them make things, and I wish they didn't make those things. <laughs> so maybe it works both ways. <laughs> so maybe it works both ways. <laughs> True, yeah. Um, but again, like with, like with everything we say, there's, there's a conscientiousness that comes into that. Yeah, Kind of that, uh, which and is... I think that if you're a maker who approaches repairing restoration with a conscientiousness and a care, yeah, then you're probably going to be headed in the right direction as long as you're willing to listen and learn. Yeah, yeah. And it's the same if you're a restorer and you're going into the making process with care, yeah, and a willingness to listen and learn, then you're probably going to be okay. Yeah, which is kind of more um, important. There are little things and specialties that that you're not going to know, yeah. and you'll get wrong here and there, but yeah, it's that conscientiousness that that goes a long way yeah i think right that's kind of um, more important than the actual um technique yeah. and your level of practice to an extent is that approach and in in both cases there's a cross-training aspect of it for me as a repair restorer i i try to find any opportunity i can to make things yeah. because that comes back to my skill as a repair restorer which is kind of why i i put that question to you in the first place because i know you know, I made these vases recently that, that, um, for the Wood Review article. Yeah, yeah. And I made them just for the practice of making yeah. them more than anything else. Um, doing this project with, with Mark, I'm excited about it because I get to try and make a historic piece similar to what I might work on, and it'll give me more confidence in that. Definitely. So there's a cross-training aspect mm. to it yeah. that I think is important. Yeah, I think they should be... I do think they're often considered two quite separate things but i think they have more in common than is often is often thought i do think they're very closely linked in a lot of regards but some things you're right that something things just do not cross over and you will just miss yeah and that's just gonna happen yeah i mean there's stuff i miss even as a professional restorer because i haven't come across them yeah exactly which is comes back to a lack of practice and almost a lack of doing one thing Yeah, yeah. That's also what I yeah. That's also what I love about restoration is doing many things. My day is never the same. Yeah, that's that's the thing as well. <clears throat> that's quite good fun. Mm. It's quite good fun not just doing one thing, even if you do get which we'll, good at it. Which we'll actually get to in a in a minute when we do the um, catch up. Yeah, you're going to be talking about the same project you worked on last time, and I've got like five. <laughs> five <things that> I've <laughs> <done last> <laughs> Very true. <laughs> which maybe we should jump right into. Actually. Yeah, fine. Um, do you want me to go first? Let you know what I've been up yeah, to. Yeah. What have you been up to, Harry? Oh, I made a bit of progress on the cabinet I was doing last week. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, progressed on the on the linen drawer. I need to know what to call it. I'm not quite sure what it is. A dresser. Isn't it just a chest of drawers? Yeah, I guess so. But that seems wrong. I don't know. I mean, not just a chest of drawers. It's a very nice chest. Yeah, of is that drawers. not just a chest of drawers you're slapping together? 
<laughs> a low boy? What are the other terms? Um, and... A low boy. Uh, well, it's, I've seen a thing like that referred to as a dresser, but I wouldn't call it a dresser. Maybe a dresser base. I think in the in the States, or my family would call it a dresser. Yeah. Um, People would refer to it as a sideboard as well because it's quite long. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Yeah, but like a four drawer like that? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, sideboard it's I want. not a credenza. No. I don't know. My drawed unit. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I've I've done the first few stages of assembly of that, and now I'm just working on all the runners and the kickers, kind of the inside carcassy bits, which all need to be done first, and then I'll do the final assembly, and then it's just the top and the drawers. But I'm really pleased; it's looking good. Other than that, I've been having some really exciting chats, like I mentioned earlier, with the makers shared in Bristol. Yeah. And I'm actually going to meet my students on monday evening which i could not be more excited about so i'm gonna be really? yeah yeah which has come around really quick so i'm gonna i'm gonna be taking over from jenny i think i'm not quite sure maybe i shouldn't be saying that <laughs> but i'm gonna be teaching on the level three makers course which is the level where they that most of them has gone through level one and two at the makers shed which is where you build a small cabinet and now they're working on their own projects and it's kind of an ongoing thing Mm-hmm. which is really interesting and I was I actually asked to be a part of that one specifically because yeah I really like that kind of layout of working on their own it makes the teaching quite fun because it's problem solving you're kind of working with the student rather than just kind of a one-sided lecturery thing mm-hmm. so I'm really excited to meet them and see what they're doing because I know the projects are quite mixed we've got someone working on some windows and someone making a huge a huge wardrobe and all sorts of stuff um wow. Yeah, I'm also going to be designing and teaching in the new year a weekend finishing course and a weekend tool care course. Um, so loads of exciting things happening there. Yeah, cool. Lots of teaching. Lots of teaching. So hopefully in the new year, I'll be doing a few weekends a month and hopefully a few nights in the week as well, which would be amazing. Yeah. Other than that, I've done a drawing of a treehouse and I'm at the moment talking <laughs> to people about hedgehog houses. That's a lot. i got a lot going on. It's a lot going on. It's exciting. Um what goes into making a hedgehog house yeah good question i i didn't know either (laughs) um so this actually uh my partner's uncle works with local primary school he volunteers there and he's doing all sorts of really cool outdoor projects he does a lot of forest management and uh, just amazing guy and he's asked me Mm -hmm. to design these kits for the for the kids to make at school um, to make the hedgehog houses so I had to do some research and various things. Obviously, I want the material to last as long as possible. It actually is quite relevant to what we've talked about today. I want yeah. I want it to last as long as possible, but they've also got to be cheap because it's a school's budget, which is obviously small. Mm-hmm. They've got to be fairly easy, but I also want it to be valuable for the kids to put together. I do want them to use some tools and learn it, but they're young kids, so thinking about that the walls have to be thick enough that the hedgehogs stay warm they've got to have a nice entrance hallway of course yeah which is mainly so kind of cats and and foxes and stuff can't get in there um but also i assume somewhere nice for them to like hang pictures and i don't know what they do in there yeah Um, wipe their feet yeah yeah that kind of thing so i've actually ordered the timber this morning it's going to be a combination of hardwood ply and larch so the sides are going to be large because okay. I wanted, I didn't want to do it all in ply because it's not very nice for the kids to work with. So the bits that are joined together are going to be large, which are going to be lap jointed and then nailed. And then it's going to have a hardwood ply bottom and top. And we might paint them. Not sure yet. Do you know what the, as a side note, the... 
decompostability of the ply is. Yeah. Because presumably it's just going to be out in nature until it decays, right? Yeah. So you want it to last as long as possible, but then when it does come apart, it's not going to get fixed. Definitely. It's just going to go back to the land. Yeah. Um, so are you looking at, like, a finish on them that, that's biodegradable or anything along that line yeah just in keeping with the conversation yeah definitely so i've been looking uh i haven't thought too much about the finishing yet but i did start doing research into kind of formaldehyde free plywood Mm -hmm. which is really difficult to find in this country turns out really yeah really difficult to find although also people don't let you know that there's formaldehyde in the ply. So it's kind of an impossible task, and nobody knows. The suppliers don't know, which is absurd. Well, somebody knows. S- just not- somebody knows, but somebody doesn't want somebody else to know. <laughs> just not talking about it. Um, so I have done some research into that, and the best I can do is sustainably sourced hardwood for the ply. I can't find any information about the binding agents used. But I know the wood has come from a good place and not just murdering everything. In terms of finishing, I haven't thought too much about it yet. I have briefly started looking into paints, but again, it's finding the right thing. Because also, mm-hmm. a lot of... It's kind of a two twofold advantage. It tends to be the things that are a little bit more eco-friendly also tend to be a bit nicer for the kids to use. Mm. So there is nice. added value in that. But I'm in the early stages, so I will update you on that one yeah cool but yeah it's a fun project yeah that um, was a nice project. and i'm gonna they just did um Go on. a bunch of bee houses over at the bower which was really oh, cool awesome. to watch. that's fun um, yeah that's really cool um yeah and i get those are always really good projects yeah i, w- I was thinking a lot about what one of the, your fellow ex colleagues I guess colleague. Mm. I don't know what. what I, don't, I don't know. Whatever. They're still colleagues, I think. Yeah, They're you not don't coworkers. <laughs> right, that makes sense. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, well, your friend Luke, him. <laughs> yeah, he's not died <laughs> or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I, when I was thinking about the hedgehog houses, I did think a lot about the was it bat houses or bird houses that he was making for a course at the Bower. Was it a course? Yeah. Um, and he did the like the rubber hinge thing. Oh yeah, that was cool. Yeah, so I've been with bike tires. Yeah, so I've been looking into bike tires and inner tubes and all of that. Um, kind of inspired by yeah. Luke. So yeah, lots to think about. But I'll let you know how that goes because I'm gonna I'm gonna go and teach the first course to the kids as well with Freya's uncle. So really excited about. It. That's gonna be fun. Something a bit different as well. That'll be fun. Yeah, that would be fun a lot. What have you been doing? You've been doing lots of things. Been doing lots of things. A lot of moving back into the workshop, which fills me with more joy than it <laughs> reasonably should. Um, like last night, I stayed late to hang brooms and you know ladders on the wall, and I was just so happy about it. Yeah. Uh, some new storage boxes arrived that I'm really over the moon about. Like, uh, they're these these DVD storage boxes. Oh yeah, those DVD things. Storage boxes. Oh, I remember you telling that me. I am more excited about than any human being should be. <laughs> But they're just long and narrow and tall. Yeah. Which is, and I also simultaneously bought myself. So this is way more plastic than I've I've purchased in the last like <laughs> three years. I also bought myself a bunch of restaurant quality small squeezy bottles. Well, they're fun. What for? And they're just well for finishes. Yeah. Um, particularly, I want to make up a bunch of set color um, water and spirit stains. Oh, nice. Yeah in them that I can kind of go, all right, here's my red and mix it with blah, 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 blah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, and they just fit 
perfectly in these DVD boxes, <laughs> and they stick up a bit, and the lid is a bit tall, and it's just extremely satisfying to me. Uh, so a lot of just laying out in the workshop, which makes me happy. Yeah. But we also have just been trying to knock out jobs, um, put this this head back on this huge wooden sculpture. Oh yeah. Um, which we had to take the head off with like an engine hoist Bloody and clean out all the glue God. around the neck, and then get it back on with a new adhesive and tidy that off. Yeah. So that's packaged up now and ready to go back. Um, lots of brass inlays, <laughs> either laying them back down or trying to make new ones. Yeah, I saw that um, on your Instagram. Some fun yeah, rolling machine which, to thin the brass out. And a lot of people telling me that I should have been annealing in between <laughs> passes, which would have made it make a lot. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Plus, it's a missed opportunity to use fire, which is always a shame. Yeah. Lots of brass inlays. Carving a new horn for a um, a little statue of a cow. Oh, that's a great project. With John, I was replacing some. That was another Instagram post. Uh, fretwork. Yeah. On a on a um, Edwardian little table. I think it was Georgian Edwardian. I don't, I don't know. know. I'm not that good at that. Yeah, I saw that. That was a fun. That one. looked really cool. Did you make it up out of multiple? piece like a ply or was it a solid piece no we'd made the new one out of solid um plantation mahogany oh yeah i the table itself it looks like the fretwork in it all this was different for each one like they weren't exactly the same it looks like multiple makers have made some are really thin and refined and some were chunky and weird definitely not Uh, from but i think the previous repairs not entirely certain yeah i honestly didn't get too much of a look at it i was focused on the the work that i was doing but yeah i think on the piece initially it was was three ply essentially so a core piece and then veneer on both sides Um, but we just went with uh, the plantation which was harder to work because you have all these tiny little um, cross grain bits that are likely to snap yeah Yeah, all that Yeah, but it was it was a great challenge it was such a delight to work on and try and get that done efficiently and get it done well and then glue that in uh, scarfing all of the little joints so that it would would go in and then again using hide glue to, to be able to press that in yeah. and hold it for a short period of time and know that it's going to be secure. Have it stay. So, um, yeah, that yeah. that's really cool. That um, I'll put that one up on the Instagram because that is definitely something worth checking out. That's a really cool, really cool little repair. Yeah, it was definitely one of those repairs that that I I'm really keen to do and I really enjoy doing. Um, it's the same for that little the the horn that I'm doing on this little sculpture. It's just such a it's a little thing. Yeah. But it is a a, a refined skill and it it just makes a big difference in in a little thing. You know, you have that fretwork and it's got a big hole in it and it looks kind of trashy. But as soon as you fill that out again, it's it's happy. Yeah, and it goes again and same with you know you've got a sculpture that's missing a horn you put that horn back on it it feels nice now in some cases again conservation ethos you might keep it because that damage tells its own story yes but in both of these cases there's there's no story in this damage that's that's needs to be maintained and the pieces will be kept rather than discarded if if they're repaired yeah definitely that's the decision that's being made which is a topic that I, I want to talk about in the longevity one later as well. Yeah, definitely. There's just been a lot. I think I've worked on one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Oh, and we went, um, one of the other things that you do as a, as a restorer a lot or a conservator in furniture is we went to a client's house and and cleaned and waxed all of it. Oh furniture. yeah, yeah. That was, it's, it's I'm not gonna lie, it's boring. Yeah. <laughs> it's really boring. <laughs> 
Beautiful home. Yeah. Beautiful furniture. But yeah, you're you're standing around waxing. Like in in all the ways I used to hate standing around sanding things. <laughs> I it's it's very similar. Yeah. But it, it is it is I still really enjoy it. In the same way I enjoy sanding more than I used to. Yeah. Because I'm thinking about what I'm doing. How much wax am I applying? How much wax did I apply last time? How long until I buff it off? Yeah. How can I get the best result so for me as as an early like i say i'm late apprentice early journeyman in my career yeah. um there's still a lot to to learn in every single piece that can keep me engaged yeah. but if you're like my superior he's been doing this for so long it's it's just tedious um, yeah definitely but a lovely opportunity to witness a lot of pieces of furniture that you might not otherwise yeah that's see. true that's true were you doing any which is you doing any cleaning as well or was it strictly waxing it most of the pieces because it's the type of house where they have a dedicated house staff sure yeah who are cleaning it regularly there was not much call to clean yeah. but i do in most cases like to try and clean off any previous not all the previous wax no. because i can buff that in the new wax into it yeah. but any dirt or grime or grease that's built up on that wax layer yeah. I, I want to remove However, most of these pieces were, were already in really good shape. So there wasn't much call for that. Nice. Yeah. But yeah, that you just go through, you, you, you know, because you've got a piece of furniture, it's got its coating on it, it's been waxed, that wax layer wears away from repeated cleaning. Yep. So you come back every year to maintain some nice pieces put another wax coat on it and that that's essentially your you know like changing the oil in your car you your maintenance of a piece yeah. to ensure it lasts yeah and and they're all beautiful pieces there was maybe one or two things that that we looked at and went oh there's some more damage here let's take this back to the shop yeah, awesome. and also hanging up some some gilt mirrors that we'd been um we've been finishing up as well so not a lot of progress on on the apothecary box yeah getting ready for my finishing course yeah which is coming up i've got three sessions in november i think cool. of this finishing course and that's the one day and it's so two of them are going to be a one day and one of them is going to be a two day because mm. the one day is that's tight it's too much yeah work. it's too much work i'm excited about it i'm excited to run it this way once <laughs> and then it's gotta change after that yeah i'm excited to see how you get with those yeah me too so i gotta finish up all the handouts for that and then finishing up my second article for wood review magazine yeah which is i'm so excited about i love the it second one i read it the first one yeah i read it this morning i like it i like it a lot the first one i wrote for them is coming out soon um, but the second one I'm so much more excited about. I'm almost a bit bummed that, like, you know, quote-unquote readers will, will be introduced to me through this first article when I like the second one so much Yeah, more. I see what you mean. Not that that's really how it works or anyone pays attention. <laughs> no, no, not necessarily, but I know what you mean. So, yeah, that's been my week. Nice one. Busy. Good busy. Yeah. Sometimes there's bad busy. Yeah. <laughs> Too often there's bad busy. A lot of running around and not actually doing much. Yeah. That's good. That's positive. Nice one. I yeah. I think that's everything, unless you've got anything else you want to mention. No, I do want to say that um, we would love it if, <laughs> if people had any questions for us about any of these things. Yes, please. I know Harry put up on the story on the Instagram. Just inundated. A request for questions. Absolutely inundated with, with questions. <laughs> <laughs> You got zero, zero questions. Yeah. So um, it it gives us first of all, give us some feedback. Let us know. Yeah. If this makes any sense. Yeah. Let um, us know what you think. But definitely ask questions because 
we do this to get excited about talking to other people about things. Yeah. So let us know what you're interested in knowing. Yeah, or suggested topics, whatever. Absolutely. Do that. And thanks for listening, guys. Cheers. Bye then. Bye. <laughs>